words of Acts, and that's all you read after the Gospels, it could lead you very naturally to a very romanticized view of what the church should be filled with. Because in those early chapters of Acts, as Luke is writing, I mean, the book of Acts spans about a three-decade time frame, but the early, and, and they kind of, it kind of highlights some of the most powerful events that um, helped establish and spread uh, the Christian faith throughout the known world at that time and beyond. But the early chapters, you get a, a real like highlight view of what's happening in the church. The church is filled with power and there is miracles. Um, and you know, Peter preaches to the crowd and 3,000 people that day are saved. And you just see this church going out with power. And Acts 2, 42 to 44, the believers have everything in common and they're sharing and doing life together. They're meeting daily. They're praying. It's this amazing picture of God's power at work. And if that's where we stopped, we might think, well, that's normative for the Christian life. That's just what the church should be. But then when you read the epistles, which are the fancy word that means the letters that are written by the apostles to churches, two years, five years, ten years after they've been planted, you begin to realize, oh, two things can actually be simultaneously true. People can be genuinely born again. They can be sincere Christians. They can have the Spirit working in their life and within their community. And those same people can be living in patterns of tremendous immaturity, patterns and practices that are deeply immature and sinful. They, these are the issues, as a reminder, of what's happening in Corinth. These are all concurrent, not a list of the issues that have been happening or have happened. These are concurrent live issues. People can be sincere Christians who have the Spirit of God and massively messed up in their walk with God and with each other. And I think that's actually instructive for us because number one, it should lead us to be more gracious with ourselves and with each other. There's never been a perfect church. And that doesn't excuse abusive behavior from church leaders or other people within the church, um, but it should challenge us if we find it easy to show up at a church and to see all the ways that other people aren't living up to the standard of Jesus. It should challenge us to realize, oh, you know what? This side of heaven, there's never been a perfect church. That's why the epistles are written, to teach Christians um, who are struggling to live faithfully into the kingdom of God. It should also remind us of Jesus' parable of the sower. Remember, there's this parable that Jesus teaches that there's uh, when the word of God goes out, it lands on four essential soil, uh, soils. The first one doesn't even get a chance because Satan comes and plucks it away. Then there's some seed that lands on kind of stony ground. It's really shallow, so it grows up quick, but then the sun scorches it and it dies, and that's a metaphor for persecution. Once hard things come, the person walks away from faith. The third is thorny ground where the seed sets and it has roots and it grows, but then it grows Weeds and thorns grow up around it and choke the kingdom of God life out from that growth and kind of suffocate it. And those thorns are the um, kind of cares and worries of this world, the deceitfulness, deceitfulness of, of riches. 
And then you have the good soil where um, the word of God lands on good soil, it takes root, and then there's fruitfulness. Um, if you think about these three kinds of soil, which, which would you kind of place Corinth in, the Corinthian Christians? Anyone want to be bold enough to? Yeah, I, th I think that, I think that's probably based on what we have in the letters, uh, the first and second letters to the Corinthians. Definitely the thorny ground. There is growth. They've received the word. They are growing in their faith, but it's really they're still very tangled into patterns and ways of thinking in terms of how they relate to God, to other people, to the world, how they're living out their faith. That is really. Uh, tangled up in immaturity, a lot of brokenness, and a lot of sinfulness. And so that should be a warning to us that even if we have sincerely turned our lives over to Jesus, it's very possible for our lives over time, slowly, to be filled with priorities and values and commitments that just subtly, slowly begin to suffocate what God wants to be bringing up in our lives. Uh, it's also instructive for us because um, when you look at these issues that are in play for the Corinthians, it's important to remember, right, our standing in Christ isn't based on our behavior, right? Whenever Paul is writing to these churches and he does this to the Corinthians, he always uses the language of, you're now in Christ. And you're like, well, wait a second, how could they be in Christ? Look at all this, look at all the ways they're massively screwing up. Well, yeah, but we don't become in Christ because we obeyed perfectly, right? We're saved by grace. And when we misbehave, disobey, uh, act foolishly, unwisely as a Christian, we don't become like unsaved. And so it's like, oh, on the days where I'm doing my devotionals, going to church, uh, I don't drop any F-bombs. Wow, I'm a Christian today. And on the days where I, you know, maybe you know, fall into some of those traps. Oh, now I'm not a Christian? No, Paul says you're in Christ. Your behavior as a Christian doesn't threaten your standing in Christ. But Paul says you need to understand that it does impact your relationship, the sense of communion with God sense of strength and health of your community, your witness as a community. And so if there are places in our lives that are really out of alignment with how God wants us to live, we should never just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, that's just no big deal. I'm still a Christian. I'm still saved. I mean, yeah, that might be true, but we always want to be moving away from sin because sin in all kinds of ways that are subtle and sometimes not subtle, disrupts and destroys our relationship with God. It jeopardizes it, jeopardizes our relationship with other people, our sense of vocation and meaning in the world, our sense of connectedness with other people. There's another comfort here. If you look at this big picture, this is a church that was planted five years ago. Paul is now writing to them because all of these issues are in play right now. Paul is writing to them because he hasn't given up on them. Has God given up on this church? No. The Spirit is prompting and inspiring Paul to write. 
if there was a church that was trying to headhunt me to be their senior pastor, they're like, Jeff, come on over. I'm like, oh, tell me about it. And they're like, just a heads up. This is what we got in play. Thank you very much. I'm going to stay in lovely sunny Nelson, D.C. It's pretty, pretty good. This is, this is rough. You could see the human temptation to say, oh, this church plant, it's failed. But Paul doesn't see it that way. God doesn't see it that way. And what's the lesson here for every single one of us? God doesn't give up on his people. Amen. God doesn't give up on you. Despite your laundry list of sin and brokenness, God doesn't say, oh, that's a bridge too far. Walk away, washing my hands. God is relentless in pursuing you. He does not give up on you and he does not give up on really very messy dysfunctional churches. There's always hope when we turn to Christ. Okay, let's go through chapter two quickly. In chapter one, Paul has been trying to help the Corinthians understand the values that frame the priorities that um, you are invited to live into as a Christian are very different from the world. And they're going to look foolish to other people. Even just the basic premise that as a Christian, you have forfeited your right to live how you see fit and you're going to build your life around Jesus. To anyone else, that seems like the dumbest idea in the whole world. So Paul says, Christianity is going to look foolish. And he emphasizes at the end of chapter one that Christianity is not essentially humanistic. It's not about us doing our best in order to access God. It's about focusing on what Christ has done because in Christ is the wisdom and power of God. And that's going to seem very foolish to those who think that um, domination and power or human intellect and sophisticated um, philosophy are the path to... um, accessing all that God or the gods have to offer. Paul says, no, it's through the foolishness of the cross. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 2, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling, My message and my preaching weren't with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human human wisdom, but on God's power. The power of the gospel, Paul says, is not in the messenger. It's in the message. And he says, I'm living proof of that. I came to you in weakness and in fear. Most commentators will say that's not hyperbole. That wasn't you know, uh, Paul playing shy. We know from different scriptures, Paul's a good writer. He's not a fantastic public speaker. There's other early leaders in the church like Apollos who are much more polished, much more sophisticated. Paul doesn't have that. He doesn't have that charismatic dynamic presence. He says, all I had was a simple message that through the cross, you could be reconciled to God. You could have your sins forgiven. You could be gifted with eternal life and you could begin a new life right now, walking with God in the power of his spirit. He says, I didn't come with wise or persuasive words. Right? That's what the Corinthians valued. They didn't really want to be associated with a leader who 
didn't have a certain cultural accoutrement. Now, for them, it was wise words, and it was um, a, uh, an air of wisdom and sophistication. What would it be for us today? Appearance, right. We want a pastor and leaders who are photogenic. We want pastors and leaders who have a dynamic presence. What else maybe are we looking for in a leader? Yeah, understanding, ability to speak, ability to speak um, across all kinds of contexts, but maybe increasingly so, ability to be able to convey and have that, um, that even more nebulous element of uh, charisma, which is charisma through a screen, charisma through social media. Maybe that's the kind of leader that we would look for naturally to say, oh, if we can build around someone like this, then our church would be successful. Then we would feel good because that's a reflection of who we are. And Paul says, I did my ministry among you in this city that was so image conscious, so conscious of status and hierarchy. I came in weakness. I doubled down in the opposite strategy. I kept my messages very simple. And I didn't come in any way that would lead you to say, wow. You heard about that new church down the road? You've got Paul as a leader? You've got to check this guy out. He's amazing. Paul said, I didn't go down there at all. I wanted you to be wowed by the power of God's spirit working through the message. Not for my human tactics and strategies, church growth strategies, um, sophisticated rhetoric that are going to draw people in. Verse 6, he says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. First, if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, what, and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared to those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. And this is a theme that Paul is building on from the first chapter. Whatever insight you have, whatever growth that you've been able to um, lean into, it's not because of um, your aptitude. It's because the spirit of God has revealed it to you. Right? It's like when Jesus was talking to Peter and says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the, you're, the, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right, but you wouldn't have been able to say that had my father not given you that answer. The spirit reveals who Jesus is. So there's a profound humility that comes with being a Christian. Because even if you amass all this insight and wisdom, you're ever always humbled by the sense of, this is all because of the grace of God. It's not, oh, look at how clever I am. Look at all these books I've read. I've been able to synthesize all this knowledge. It's a profoundly humbling revelation here that God's Spirit reveals to us. We don't figure it out on our own. Divine wisdom comes through a revelation, not our own discoveries. Verse 10, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? And in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, 
so that we may understand what he has freely given us. The Bible tells this unified story of what God is doing in the world, who God is, who we are, how we're called to live. But the, there was a mystery there. There was a hiddenness. There was a sense of where is this going? And now it's been revealed in and through the person of Jesus. Jesus is sort of like the, uh, the hermeneutical key, the lens through which everything else falls into place and makes sense. Rick spoke to that last week. When Jesus draws near to those, uh, to that couple on the road to Emmaus, he opens the scripture to them and explains, he connects all the dots and shows how all of scripture is leading people to him. He is the point of reality. Um, I was reading this and I thought, you know, one of the differences between maybe uh, common contemporary ideas around, let's say, you know, you probably heard the word like woke before, right? Like woke is this idea that you know, for a certain number of people, there's an awareness that you can gain or ha um, gain access to, come, come into a knowledge of, and you are literally like awakened to reality that other people don't see, but like you can see it. And that awareness of reality allows you to address issues in the world that um, need to be addressed through that worldview. What Paul is saying here, and what the Spirit through Paul is saying here, is there is always a new human philosophy, a new angle, a new take, um, that attempts to say, oh, this is what's really happening, here's the truth, uh, here's how we see what we need to see. And Paul says, no, that actually only happens by the Spirit of God. As the Spirit opens our mind and our hearts to understand what God has communicated in Scripture, and then how we're called to respond. So it's not a man-made wokeism, it's a Spirit-gifted awareness and enlargement of our, of our perspective, because it goes beyond a mere human and humanistic perspective, and it's informed by divine wisdom. And he says, this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish and can't understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. Paul says there are, you can read the Bible your whole life, you can study the Bible your whole life, but if you don't have the Spirit, you won't be able to accept and really understand, and that means to embrace fully, the message of the scripture, which is about leading you to Jesus and surrendering your life and your destiny to him. Paul says, someone without the spirit, they can, again, read the Bible, they can have conversations with you, but unless the spirit opens in some ways, at work in their heart, opens their mind to understanding, it's just going to come across as nonsense. It's just foolishness to them. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with people lately who have come back to the question of how do I share my faith? How do I help people um, consider Christianity? How do I just plant a little seed of faith and hope in someone's life so that I don't... How do I do that in a way that doesn't jeopardize the relationship? How do I do it in a way that doesn't put people off and have me come across like a Bible thumper or whatever it is? And there's a good sensitivity there, and there's lots of things that we should be doing. We should always be growing in our ability to listen to people well, 
and to be sensitive to the Spirit's prompting. But part of what I've also said to people is, part of our responsibility is just to share humbly from our heart. But when people are like, that's ridiculous, or you're a moron, or uh, thanks, but that is not for me. Um, that doesn't mean you failed. That if you just would have said the, a different set of words in a little bit different way, if you would have had a slightly different tonality in your voice, if you would use this metaphor from that, because ultimately what causes someone to hear and embrace the message is not the messenger, it is not the precise ordering of words, it's the spirit making us receptive. That's a mystery, we don't know how it works, but relieve yourself of the burden of feeling like you have to figure it out perfectly. Paul said, I came to the most powerful, sophisticated city in the ancient world. And I just said, I'm just going to tell people about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, yeah, I'm not really that fancy. I don't got a lot of tricks up my sleeve. What happens here on a Sunday morning? Like, from a worldly point of view, not that much. We're not really an attractional church in the sense of like, wow, you should come to this church because at this church, there's music like you can't hear anywhere else. There's teaching like you can't hear anywhere else. There is fill in the blank community like you can't get anywhere else. I think this is a solid church. I think we continue to grow in healthy ways, but this is a pretty like meat and potatoes and I'm okay with that because I don't think we could have Disneyland going on in here. And people outside are still going to say, what a bunch of morons. I'm not interested. Right? That's okay. There's a relief there. My responsibility is to lovingly and humbly and strategically, you know, plant seeds, be honest about where I'm at in my own faith. If someone wants to talk about faith, if they ask me about it, I share. But I don't put a pressure on myself to have to craft the exact perfect thing. And if I just, or if, if they walk away, if I have a conversation and they walk away, that must be my fault. Paul says, No. They're seeds, and they fall on different ground. Verse 15, the person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to mere human judgments. Because who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul says, you as a Christian community have access to the will of God. What Paul in Romans says is God's good and pleasing and perfect will. We can know God's will. We don't need to grapple in the dark. We have a Spirit that empowers us and guides us and leads us and convicts us when we're going off on a wrong path and sensitizes our heart to the things of God and wants to gift us with supernatural abilities that allow us to be a witness and point people towards Jesus. We have access to divine wisdom, and it's through the Spirit of God. So again, there's this theme of humbling the Corinthians. Don't think too highly of yourself. All that you have is a gift. And come back to that place where Jesus is at the center and you are humbly walking with him by the power of the Spirit. Here's two quick points to close. Number one, how do we apply a message like this? One of our six covenant affirmations, these are sort of like um, pillars through which, lenses through which we understand the core of the Christian life. One of them is worded in a really interesting way. Conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. Conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. That means 
as a Christian, I learn what it means to cooperatively surrender to the Spirit's working in my life, to its um, nudgings, to the promptings, to the convictions. How do I do that? What does that look like? I mean, it's a big mystery. We could talk about this as a sub-series, but just for this morning, what are ways that we take a step, that we put ourselves in a position where we can more readily live consciously dependent on the Holy Spirit? What has been helpful for you or what have what has been something that you've read or heard about? Yeah, very good. Yeah, exactly. Me too. I, and I'm an efficient person, so I'm like, I'll wait for God. God's got 30 seconds. And then I want to, I got stuff to do, God. Right? But it's instructive, right? When Jesus ascends, he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait. Just wait. Right? And there's a word there for all of us, especially if you're wired like me and you want to like get a lot of stuff done. Getting a lot of stuff done doesn't mean being fruitful for God. And actually haste the, the um, heart and mind posture of just running the RPM of your interior engine as hard as you can so that you can get lots of things done, that's actually cross-purposes with consciously depending on the Holy Spirit. That's been my experience. I, I think what that has to at least look like is learning to slow down. And if you're like, well, how slow? Slower than you're currently operating. Slower than you're currently operating. Even for five or ten minutes. And to sit and sit with God. Sit in silence. And you don't have to wait for tongues of fire. You can wait for a prompting. Maybe something, nothing. Maybe a journal. But it's about slowing down and saying, God, is there something you want to put on my heart before I just barrel into this conversation, before I barrel into this meeting, before I barrel into this day? I want to pause. I want to slow down. That's why the practice of not just daily devotionals, but Rick's mentioned it, the practices of daily offices where you pause three times over the course of your day, morning, sometime in the afternoon, in the evening, that actually builds in a sense of dependency. Not just in the morning, Holy Spirit fill my cup, and now I just spend the whole day emptying it, and then reset. It's Holy Spirit fill my cup, come back at noon or one, Sit, pause, wait, pray, worship, again at 5 or 8 p.m. So one is to learn. There's a deep mystery here. I don't want to make it sound like this is easy, and we'll discover more in Corinthians. But we want to learn, to grow, to be conscious, consciously dependent on the Holy Spirit. And lastly, um, and this would be a word for those who uh, are not of faith, that are listening this morning, the gospel really is simple. Um, I thought as I was preparing this message, when Paul talks about going to Corinth and saying, "I didn't, I didn't bring, a, I didn't have a bag of tricks. I just kind of kept pointing people to the cross in different ways." And I thought, I wonder how many people reject Christianity because it seems really kind of impossibly simplistic to them. It seems like foolishly simplistic. You're telling me that the, the unifying story of reality is that. God made us in his image. We were valuable. We were very good creations. We turned from God. 
you're under the condemnation of sin. The wages of sin is death. God came in human form to pay that debt for us, was resurrected, offers now new and eternal life. And that's a gift. You don't have to earn it. You can simply receive it. And then you enter into a reconciled relationship with God and you begin to learn how to walk with God faithfully and become the image bearer that you were destined to be, no longer walking under the power and penalty of sin, but now being filled more and more with the Spirit and its fruit. You can have your sin forgiven, salvation. The gospel is a power, but its message is very, very simple. It's about turning from your sin, from your self-centered life, and the words don't have to be perfect, but in some ways, Jesus, I acknowledge you as Lord. I need you to save me. I need you to forgive me. I need my sin dealt with. I don't want to live this. I don't want to live under sin's power and penalty anymore. You're the only one who has the authority to remove that sin and that judgment from me. I need your rescue. That gospel message is accessible to anybody. A five-year-old can understand it. The uh, broadest, most sophisticated intellectual can understand it. But there are people who look down their noses at Christianity because of its maddeningly simplistic core and heart. There's many things in the Christian faith that are uh, just incredibly complex and will stretch your intellect beyond its ability to handle it, this side of heaven. But the foundation of Christianity is a simple message of the gospel. And if you've ever hesitated or rejected or dismissed out of hand the Christian faith because it sounded so childish, so juvenile, um, maybe this morning I would invite you to reconsider. Maybe this would be a morning where I would point you like Paul did to the cross and said, I can't bring this truth to bear on your life with interesting and um, complex and sophisticated turns of phrase and metaphor and words, but I can preach to you that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that those who place their faith and trust in him would not perish have eternal life. Let's pray. God, on this uh, Pentecost Sunday, may you reveal yourself in a deeper and richer way to all of us. May you um, teach us. Maybe it's uh, discipline us. Um, maybe it's confront us. If we, like I have many times in my life, rushed ahead in life trying to figure out how to do the Christian life on my own. And I have been consciously independent of reliance on your spirit, God. Forgive me of that. Forgive us for that. Teach us what it means to walk in the power of your spirit. Amen.